Have a seat. We are glad you are here at the Orchard. I think many of you know who I am. I'm Daniel's dad, but maybe some of the newer ones don't. Rebecca and I, in 1990, started the church at Carbondale. Daniel was 14 years old. A lot of things have changed over that time. The church has a new name, The Orchard, and Daniel's the lead pastor. And he'll be back next Sunday. So he asked me to fill in for him today. And we are going to get right into what I believe to be a very practical teaching that can make a difference in your life this afternoon. Have you noticed in our nation that there is a great division politically? In fact, sociologists say we are majorly divided. There is hostility, intolerance, anger, being more characteristic of the uh, discourse in our land today than ever before. It's like we have uh, lost our way. We've lost relational intelligence, which is what we need. Now, you know what IQ is, right? That's our intelligence quota. And some people are smarter than others. Um, But smart people can be just as angry and combative as people who aren't as smart. The smart people have the advantage of a larger vocabulary. It's the only difference. EQ is emotional intelligence quotient. And recently, it has been more in the news. Uh, Back about 20 years ago, Daniel Goldman did an experiment with uh, kids who were five or six years old, developing emotional intelligence. He had them uh, at a table in a room with an instructor, There was a marshmallow and a plate on that table. And the instructor would say, if you will wait till I get back, I'll give you two marshmallows. And the the video on the children is just hilarious. Because some of them were there, some of them just gobbled it right up. Others were sitting on their hands. And they did a longitudinal study of those kids down through high school. And the ones who were able to forestall their enjoyment delayed gratification, did better in high school, so I guess self-discipline is a part of emotional intelligence. Let's look at that definition of emotional intelligence, the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. We need a dose of that, right? Emotional intelligence. But there is a now sociologists are putting forth and studying relational intelligence. So it goes beyond emotional intelligence. It incorporates emotional intelligence, but it has to do with the way we get along with other people. And it's a very hot topic in our society today because of the dissension and division. Relational intelligence includes skills like self-awareness, empathy, Understanding the other perspective, emotional and cognitive accuracy, capacity to resonate with another, and managing emotions. That that sounds like it was written by an academic, right? Essentially, it means able to get along. And if you're in kindergarten, it means plays well with others. So as we progress, we're going to go beyond all of those to what I refer to as Christian relational Intelligence. Now, how would that be different than just ordinary relational 
intelligence. We're going to dig into that today. Daniel gave an incredible vision last week of what it would do for a church of Jesus followers to permeate and influence our society. And today we're going to look at what you, as an individual, as a Jesus follower, in everyday conversations and relationships, can love God and love people in such a way that it is a light shining into our society. So as we look at relational intelligence, especially of the Christian nature, it is a higher challenge. And I want to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and just give you a a sneak preview, a taste. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And even as I read this very introductory verse about Christian relational intelligence, you will be challenged and astonished. What I'm going to read is a description of how it should be among us and with us at all times. It should be the norm, not the exception. You ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, there goes selfies right there (laughs) and pictures of your food. You know, I'm just kidding. You can still do that. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In, In humility, value others. Serve the interest of others before your own interest. It says uh, vain conceit. Sociologists in our day have... uh, put this a little differently about our younger generation. They say it's characterized, they are characterized by high arrogance and low self-esteem. Now think for a moment how that works out. Maybe that's that empty or vain conceit that Paul is talking about. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Now you can tell by that verse, those verses, that we are taking it up many notches. In fact, we are taking Christian relational intelligence out of the realm of what you are able humanly to accomplish on your own. Christian relational intelligence that you put the interest of others in front of your own. That's a challenge. That's a, that's a confrontation of our ego right there. Now, let's go back to the origin of the Christian love ethic, Christian relational intelligence. We're going to look at some of the things that Jesus taught, exemplified, and demonstrated in his life 2,000 years ago. In fact, the first one is found in Matthew. So in everything, I think that's Matthew um, 6, in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and prophets. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. Who is this young rabbi who's taking it on himself to tell the other religious leaders what does or does not sum up the whole Old Testament? Jesus said, do unto others what you would have others do to you. And you're like, ho-hum, yeah, we know that. Everybody knows that. We've heard that all of our lives. Maybe you have. But in Jesus' day, this was the first time they had heard it. And it was startling. This had been stated before, 
by philosophers and religious leaders, but always negatively. Don't do to others what you don't want them doing to you. You see the difference between the passive and the intentional doing to others, going out of your way, doing for others how you would want to be treated? When Jesus said this, what was the social construct in the Roman Empire? Was it civil? Was kindness the rule of the day? No. For the people that made up the lower 80-90% peasants, farmers, merchants, slaves, third of the empire were slaves, um, this would have been startling because they were brutalized. In the Roman Empire, in that culture, brutality was the norm of the day. People's lives were insignificant. If you were married, your wife was property, your children were property, your slaves were property, you could do whatever you wanted because they had no value. That would be a brutal context to live in. And so Jesus is exploding a bomb in the middle of the social construct of the day. And it gets worse. The next thing he says, he replied, taking from the Torah, what we call the Shema, where we get love God and love people, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And you're like, well, of course, Doug, we know that. This was the first time the Jewish religious leaders heard love your neighbors yourself paired with love the Lord your God. Can you imagine how that rocked their world? It changed the dynamic of religion from just obeying the law to how you treated people. Love your neighbor as yourself. This was revolutionary. Not only in the Jewish religion and Jewish faith, it would have been revolutionary throughout the Roman Empire. It was unheard of. It was startling. And then he takes it even worse. In John, I think, yeah, 14. A new command I give you. This is on Jesus last night on earth. Within hours, he would be arrested, beaten, and crucified. He's telling his disciples this, and he's making this a new, look at that, a new command. Are you kidding? Jesus how can you replace all the commands of the Old Testament? All 613, you already reduced it to two. Now you tell us there's one. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. See, this takes you out of the realm of generic love. Or loving as you please. How would the world be different if you were to love others the way Jesus has loved you? Sacrifice his life for you. Went to bat for you. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, let me ask you a question. If you put a sign on the street that says, this is a church, does that make this a church? If you have a sign on the street that says, this is a church, and the people inside are mean and judgmental, that's not a church. Jesus said, when they see how you love one another like I've loved you, they will know. This is a safe place. This is a church. This is populated by my followers. Does that make sense? Do you understand how that works? 
And so as Jesus taught these things in our day, we're kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the way life is. Everybody knows those kinds of things. But in Jesus' day, he exploded a bomb in a very brutal cultural society. And we're going to read next in Colossians of how this is to be implemented. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae that is in what is now Turkey. Then it was Asia Minor. Thirty years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul is seeking to flesh out this love ethic that Jesus established. Now, he's writing this to churches of people throughout the empire. There was a church here in this town, Colossae, and they would have been a, a variety of stations and races. There would have been, if you look at Paul's letters, there would have been slaves, freedmen, slave masters, officials, peasants, all levels of people. And, and nowhere else in that society did that variety of people come together. And now he's telling them how to behave, how to act toward one another. 30 years after Jesus died and rose again, Paul is fleshing this out. Don't disregard the first few words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, the word there could be righteous and dearly loved. Is that a command? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Is that a command? No, it's a statement of fact. <laughs> now, there can be some commands follow. If you're familiar with Colossians, up to that point of that comma, Colossians 1, 2, 3, is a description of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done in you, he piles it up. Builds you up so that when you get to this verse with the first command, you're going to look at it differently. Therefore, as God's chosen people. Do you know what it's like not only to be not chosen, but to be rejected? In school, you probably had other kids that made fun of you. You weren't chosen for the games. And it always hurt. But Paul is saying that Almighty God, the creator of the universe, who made all of us, he has selected you personally to have a relationship with. So much he loves you that Jesus died for you. You are chosen. You are solid and stable in your position and condition, having been chosen by God. Holy means righteous. Not that you have achieved that in practice, but that your nature now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you have been made holy and righteous. That's your condition and your practice. You just want to live that out because that's your nature now. That's your identity and dearly loved. This was amazing in the first century because the gods of the first century were living on Mount Olympus. They were always fighting, and, and they were uh, sending lightning bolts at people and causing volcanoes. 
So here we have the introduction by Jesus and following up that God is a loving God. And you are dearly loved. Do you feel different when you know that you are loved or you question whether or not you're lovable? When you feel loved by a person of prominence, your understanding of your self-worth increases. And if you know that you're loved by God, then the negative comments of a schoolmate can't sting as bad. Because you're already loved by the God of the universe who made the heavens and the earth. Now, those words right there, if you're taking notes, don't go past them. Don't try to fulfill the directions until you have the identity. All right? So here are the directions. Clothe yourselves with compassion. The word there could be tender mercies. Kindness. Humility, gentleness, and patience. And we're looking at, oh, yeah, we all know that. Just be a nicer person. That's what that's actually saying. Oh, no. In Jesus' day and time, a person who were to follow these directions out of a deep sense of security and being loved would have stood out like a light in a dark place. And you may look at that and say, oh, compassion, kindness, humility, These are sissies. Why? I don't want to live that way. I want to be strong. These people who became Jesus' followers, who lived this out, were the kind of people that could stand in an arena soon to be mauled by lions and stand there without fear and strength of conviction. That's who they were. But in their relationships... They were careful and kind, not to hurt, not to diminish, not to trample on other people. And he goes on to say, this direction now, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. A couple of weeks ago, the last Sunday in December, I did a whole message on that. You can go back and listen to that podcast. The next verse is, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In your lifetime, you have known, almost by second nature, that God is love and we're to love one another. In that day and time, these words were explosive. And I can tell you in our social culture today that if you live by these words, you will also stand out and convey to a dark world what light looks like. And you're thinking, well, I don't know, Doug, you know, it's a lot of energy. It's uh, kind of scary to put myself out there like that and to be loving and patient, yeah, that kind of thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you really have no choice. If you're going to really follow Jesus, it means that you will embody the love ethic of Jesus in your relationships with one another. It's okay for you to be pure and to follow the guidelines of Christian ethic, but Paul says, if I don't have love, I am nothing. And so as a Christian, this is mission critical. 
the way you treat other people. That's where we start. It's not something we do casually. It's not something we do if we have the time or energy, but it's something that we do as we're thinking about it throughout the day. I don't know what you think about during the week, but how many times during the week would you deliberately think to yourself, I am dearly loved. I'm chosen by God. I'm solid. I'm stable. I have an identity. And I want to, in the relationship here I have at home, at work, at school, wherever it may be, I want to operate with humility and gentleness and put this person's interest above my own. Wow. That's not something that we necessarily consciously take stock of and do, is it? But apparently it's so important that Jesus would have us think that way and relate that way. Not just go through life casually bouncing along, but have an agenda. So that when you leave here today in your car, if there's somebody else in that car with you, your assignment is to make sure that person knows that they are loved and cared for and you're placing their interests beyond your own. Unfortunately, how many times when you leave church do you have an argument before you get out of the parking lot? This is applying to us today that we would fulfill the ethic of love that Jesus has given us. Now, what we're going to do next is we're going to break it down. Like I said a moment ago, if we, all of us corporately, uh, fulfill the vision of loving God and loving people, then the community will take note that Jesus actually came and loved us and died for us and rose again. So how do we do that individually, every day, in your home environment, at work, at school, wherever you may be? We're going to break it down to the most uh, irreducible interaction, and that is a conversation. In a conversation with someone else, that's where you begin to apply all of the incredible power and provision that God has put in you to flow through you to the other person standing in front of you or sitting beside you that you convey the ethic of Jesus. And we're going to find those instructions in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now James is the half-brother of Jesus. Again, he is writing 30, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's writing to people, Christians, who have been scattered throughout the empire because of persecution. The Roman Empire, along with the uh, church of the day, uh, persecuted and suppressed Christians. If you were a Christian in that day, there would be a time when you would be called with the others who lived in your community to come to the market square. And there there would be an altar to the emperor. And at that altar would be a pinch of incense that you would be compelled to take some, put it on the altar, recognizing that the emperor is divine and he is the one you serve. Christians couldn't do that. As a result, their property was confiscated. They were run out of town. They were maimed 
imprisoned or killed. Into that environment, James is writing this, as Paul wrote a moment ago, in a hostile environment, this is how we conduct ourselves. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Simple enough, right? What James is advocating here is what we now call attentive listening. Let me, let me describe to you what attentive listening is. It will revolutionize your life, probably your marriage, your family, your other relationships. It's a novel idea, I know. But when someone's speaking to you, you face them. You put down your screens. You turn off the TV or put it on mute. You put down the paper or the book, and you face them. I know this is scary. You look at them with your face toward them. Novel, right? I mean, who would think this stuff up? So you listen to them attentively, and you listen, and your face reflects the mood of what they're saying. It could be happy, sad, concerned. But it shows that you're following when your face reflects what they're saying and how they feel. You're listening attentively so that when they get through, you can tell them what's really right. <laughs> no, nah, I just made that up. You're listening <clears throat> to them attentively so that you can understand their perspective on whatever it is. So you can understand how they feel about this, whatever subject of the conversation is, so that you can understand how they got to their perspective and how they look at this subject. How long would it take for you to listen well enough to understand those things? Probably longer than a commercial that's going on at the game. So you may miss the next play. I told you this would be sacrificial, but you didn't realize the high cost, right? And so you're listening so well to understand. And what's the first thing you say? Because we're slow to speak. The first thing we say is something like this. Well, let me make sure I'm understanding you. It sounds like that you feel sad because of this situation you're describing. Am I getting that right? What did you just do? <clears throat> Have you noticed that when you listen the other way and you just try to answer back, the person comes back and says the same thing over again but louder? When there's no recognition that you are actually understanding, it gets louder and longer. But when you indicate... Let me understand you. Are you saying this and you feel this about that? The other person feels connection. And now we can go on to the next thing. Don't have to get louder. Don't have to get longer. But what you say could also be a question. Help me understand how you arrived at that position. I want to really understand. In that conversation, you want to end up Here's the person, here's you, 
you want to end up looking at it from that person's perspective. And guess what? If that's your spouse, then your spouse does not feel alone anymore. Adversarial advocate. Big difference. You may have been trained in uh, attentive listening if you've worked customer relations or um, if you've worked in customer's irritation and complaints, right? And not to become slow to become angry. So your anger, by the way, if you are not sure that you are dearly loved and that you are chosen by God and you are righteous, it's hard for you to stand still and listen to somebody else's criticism of you. Because in a conversation, especially with our loved ones, sometimes at work, oftentimes in a conversation, the other person is pointing out my fault or what they perceive as my fault. I mean, what's up with that? How can you stand there and listen to someone who is pointing out your fault or actually criticizes you or cusses you out in a loud voice if you are not sure that you are chosen, righteous, and dearly loved by God? But when you are, your identity is established by God. It's not within the realm of that person to tinker with it. You can listen because you have patience, and there's plenty more where that came from, because you're relying on the Holy Spirit's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience. You're there. You're reflecting. I think I hear you understand that you think I have this problem and this fault. Let me think about that. I believe you're right. You are right that I made that mistake, that I was living that way, and I, I was wrong. wrong, wrong, wrong. It's hard to get out. You were right. I was wrong. I am so sorry. I apologize. Will you forgive me? What would that do to conversations at your house? If your worth wasn't dependent on being right in a conversation. You see, in Christian relational intelligence, you don't have to win because you've already been won. You don't have to win the argument because you've already been won by the love of God. And in those converse, confrontations, conversations, you are able to stand in that chaos, perhaps, stand being accused and continue to have a heart of peace, a sense of love for that person, putting their interest above your own, responding with understanding, Sometimes responding with apology, and your anger does not flare. Now, if your anger flares in a conversation, where does that go? You go here, anger. The other person goes there. Let's see what happens when a person allows their anger to enter a conversation. Because your anger <clears throat> does not produce or achieve the righteousness that God desires. Now, it sounds theological or religious. Righteousness means going to church more, right? No. God's righteous intentions for your relationship, husband and wife, 
his intentions of righteousness exceeds your highest dreams of what a marriage relationship could be. His intention, his righteous intention for your married relationship would be that you would love, mutually respect one another, that you would work together, that you would have passion together as a couple. That's what you want, right? Well, God wants it, and it's righteous. It's not a religious thing. In your family, what you would want is peace and quiet sometime. That your kids would listen to you. That they would do what you instruct them to do. That they wouldn't talk back. That they would respect you. If you will follow this protocol with your children even, in the family setting, that you are listening Years ago, when our kids were growing up, there was a book out called Fill Your Cup. And it, it, the indication was that when your kid comes in to say something and talking to you, that you would get eye level with them, and you would listen and take in what they're saying with your faith, with your face, and that would fill their love cup so they would have that sense of security. God's righteous intentions for every relationship you have are beyond your intentions, and if you will leave your anger out of it, God is able to introduce his extreme and glorious power to achieve his purposes of righteousness in this situation, in this relationship. Isn't that cool? All you got to do is just not get mad. All you got to do is listen, reflect, speak little. Don't become angry. And then it's kind of like, okay, God, I think you ought to take this one. And he'll give you what to say, what to do, how to act. But here's a, a warning. If you're listening, you're not liking that, and you want to rebut it, and you're like, well, you can't say that to me. It's kind of like, enter your anger, exit God. So if you don't want God to have anything to do with your relationship or situation, just expel a little anger. It says here God doesn't work in that kind of environment. But he will bring about righteousness. Now remember, you're already righteous. He will bring about righteous relationships, even if you're in a relationship with somebody that doesn't even believe in God. He will bring about the very best in that relationship and that situation. Listen much. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Let God work. Is that challenging? The only way it can be done is by the power of the Holy Spirit within you as a believer and follower of Jesus. He established the ethic, but it was unattainable apart from his death and resurrection that brought the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. And now you can do that. Supernaturally, you can do that. Now I want to ask you, I've challenged you today by the word of God that you would be a person who loves God and loves people. But we've gone beneath the surface of how you love and that you would love even in conversation, put others' interests before your own, and that you would think about that and how to do it more during the week. I'm going to ask you if you'll make a commitment to God today, and the way you'll express, yes, I will do that in a moment, is all you need to do is nod you can do a little nod or a big one. It's not for me to see. I probably won't see it. But it's just between you and God to affirm that you are listening, you've heard, and you want to fulfill 
the instructions that you've heard today. Now, you can go like that if you don't want any part of it, but you can nod if you're committing yourself to fulfill his ethic of love. So, are you willing to commit yourself to allow him to fulfill his ethic of love through you? Cool. Because we have right here, in a moment, you'll be coming to this table. On this table are the symbols of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed so that you could be saved and filled and know that you're dearly loved and chosen and holy. So when you take of the cup and the bread, thank him for what he has done so you can fulfill his ethic of love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words that are startling today as they were then when Jesus brought them, revolutionary, that challenge our self-centeredness, our ego. Father, we put that aside. We put you first. We put the needs of others in a position that we will serve. We thank you for this message and the power you give us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.